Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Compliance Expert Radio Show, your source for the latest information on corporate governance, internal audit, SOCs, and risk management services. With in-depth interviews, discussions, and insights from leading experts. Hosted by Sonia Luna, CEO and founder of Aviva Spectrum. This is the Compliance Expert Radio Show. And now, here is your host, Sonia Luna. Hi, I'm Sonia Luna, CEO and founder of Aviva Spectrum, a financial transformation and compliance consulting firm headquartered in sunny Los Angeles, California. I'm also a speaker and writer on topics like financial close transformation, COSO, ERM, internal audit, and accounting-related topics. My guest today, which I'm super excited, is Brenda Morris. Brenda is a retail financial consultant working with teams to really optimize their environments and support growth, and we're going to get into it about growth. She was most recently with Hot Topic Torrid, an exciting leader in the gift and fashion apparel retail, where she was a strategic partner to grow and develop the company and to spin out the Torrid brand, which most of you are familiar with. Prior to that, Brenda was CFO for 511 Tactical, and that was an international apparel and gear company. If you haven't shopped online on their stuff, phenomenal stuff there. And also Love Culture, a young women's retail which doubled in size during her time with them. She is a guest speaker and active member of the AICPA. Brenda also serves on the board of directors of Boot Barn Holdings, Toulouse Trading Company, and several other organizations. She obtained her undergraduate degree in business accounting from PLU and her MBA from Seattle University. She holds her CGMA, CPA, and CMA, that's a lot of stuff after her last name. We'll be discussing what steps finance executives can take when starting their own financial transformation. Welcome, Brenda. Thank you, Sonia. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I, I mentioned how excited I was because it's one of our uh, first interviews talking about financial transformation. And, you know, because several years, both in my own experience and in discussions with CFOs, the concept, okay, this thought of modern finance and transforming the accounting department seems like a daunting task, but not to mention trying to understand these little pesky workforce guys called millennials. Okay, they really want, what do they really want from a modern accounting department to keep them motivated and excited about their career? And quite frankly, you know, the organization that they work for too. So I know today's listeners are going to walk away knowing, first off, very instrumental steps, because I know you've done this at least three times, towards continuous accounting and developing a modern finance department. So Brenda, given your experience as a finance executive and advisor, can you share with our audience what was your first, you know, inspiration towards actually trying to create your ideal modern finance department? Sure, Sonia. So I think from my perspective, the inspiration has been there for a long, long time. I think I come from a place of 
always wanting to optimize business processes and look to ways that we can add value as finance and accounting teams versus just checking off the box and getting the day-to-day operations and bookkeeping done. It's really how can we be strategic partners inside of organizations and provide our peers, our, our business owners, our department owners inside the organizations really great, timely, accurate um, value-adding information. And so that's always been you know, kind of part of my DNA and, and what I've believed in. I think over the last 10 or 15 years, it's been a challenge for finance executives to figure out how to do that. I think there's a little bit of change is always scary. It's hard to change. It's, uh, you know, when you've been doing something the same way for a very long time and closing the books and using Excel to do budgets and using Excel to do financial statements and, you know, and run your, your closed process sort of ad hoc, formalizing it and looking at ways of optimizing it can be a little bit frightening for folks. I think that with the millennials that are coming into our environments, they want more energizing and learning roles and value-adding roles versus just sitting at a desk and you know crunching out Excel spreadsheet after Excel spreadsheet. So my first exposure, uh, probably about seven, eight years ago, to Blackline was a little bit of a trigger for me in that I always knew that I had this slant of going into an organization and helping you know run you know business process reviews and evaluate tweaks that you could make. Well, why do we take that step? You know these eight steps could we do two and it would satisfy that and not have to do quite as much manual work. When I saw the Blackline tool at a CFO conference, that was probably the biggest inspiration that I've had and the turning point. Whereas even if I didn't use the Blackline tool, just the thought of continuous accounting and not having everything grind to a screeching halt for the two or three weeks surrounding month-end close and actually being able to start looking at having those optimized functions and and the ability to add higher value versus just being seen as kind of the the guy in the green shade in the back room. Uh, That was really, for me, probably the big turning point and just starting to think about how I could integrate this into the organizations that I was a part of or or could touch and make life better for them as well as all the constituents that that were, um, you know, getting the deliverables that the accounting team was was sending out. Mm -hmm. And I love the fact that you mentioned that grinding halt, right, those two to three weeks (laughs) right before close. Um, And it used to be when I was uh, back in the day at a public accounting, they'd say, oh, you can leave and go to one of your clients after you're done and doing in public accounting, and guess what? You know, you, you have just these quarter-end spikes and that's it. But given some of the new accounting rules and some of the massive transactions and what we're actually accounting for, that spike is actually continuous on a monthly, sometimes even weekly basis. So with the concept, right, the concept, the theory of continuous accounting, it's smoothing out the workload. And I think if millennials were to actually take a graphical, like just take a look at what your tasks are, Okay, and if you used a a software product that could automate some of that, and therefore your spikes are not only not as high, but more importantly, you're smoothing out some of those activities that really don't need to be done at that screeching halt uh, towards that end of that month or that quarter. Now, most professionals, okay, believe they have good systems in place, like oh, I got Oracle, I got this great ERP package, and I'm doing just fine, or they close their books on time, and they just have enough transparency to get by. But 
What are some of the warning signs, okay, that finance executives should be aware of that they are behind the curve and they need to really start planning for their modern finance journey, Brenda? That's a great question, Sonia. So I think that a couple of the key warning signs are probably the fact or or the observation that you're always looking backwards, right? And that and sometimes you're not looking backwards days, you're looking back weeks and months depending on the efficiency of your systems and you're always in catch-up mode versus looking at real-time information and using, you know, what's happening today and what's going to happen tomorrow as a way to develop a higher value adding team. I think that uh, the, the, the big lessons around the fact that you're not able to be proactive and you're being reactive in whether it's general ledger reconciliations or cash accounts or just the close process or, again, the fact that you really do come to some grinding halt for a week or two and then everything day-to-day falls behind and then you're catching up and then it's time to you know do another close or another review to your point. You are always chasing your tail versus being this proactive business partner who can literally day to day, you know, say to whomever it is that they work closest with on the teams, hey, have you looked at the numbers the last couple of days? There's something happening here. I think we need to make an adjustment versus two months from now, you're, you look back and you're like, oh, something happened on October 10th or, you know, whatever the date happens to be and we need to figure it out, but you're already two months in arrears on that and then the problem has you know, continue to expand and get worse or whatever the case might be. So I think those are a couple things. You hit the, the nail on the head a little bit on the millennials as well and just having a smoother workflow. I think another warning sign is just morale issues. I think that our workforce uh, today, they don't want to have these huge spikes where they're working, you know, 80 hours a week for two weeks in a row and then, you know, then they're normalized at a 50-ish hour a week for a week or two and then spike back up because it's month and close or it's quarter end or it's review time. And so I think when you start to see people on your team, you know, their performance and morale uh, degrade, that's, that's a sign as well that things aren't going like they're supposed to and that you have an opportunity to look at how do you move to a continuous accounting and a more smooth and, and real-time process. Right, and and to go with the the millennial thought process here, they also when they they go to an interview and let's say they're looking for their ideal working environment, telling them that they're going to be stuffing binders with pieces of paper so you can pass <laughs> those binders around for sign up. It's just not that sexy, okay? Because no. <laughs> they're like, okay, so where am I going to go from here? And, and they're at the some of these millennials are at the bottom of the totem pole in terms of decision making power and authority. And therefore, they're looking at these binders going, okay, well, hey, if you guys haven't adopted, you know, just even electronic sign-off, can you imagine what uphill battle they're about to face getting into, uh, you know, just anything that's like an automated workflow? Whereas their peer group, let's say, has a different – they have a buddy down the street that has uh, some type of automated workflow or tasks management, let's say it's project management, et cetera – they're going to say, well, gosh, you know, my buddy is working, you know, on his handheld devices, and yes, of course, they have a laptop, et cetera, but if he, re- if he really, really needed to work, he could do it remotely, fast, efficiently, 
without trying to, you know, track down pieces of paper. Um, I, I think that's another warning sign. If you've got paper binders, that's probably the key indicator. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. Yes, I would say run the other direction if you walk in and there's rows of bookshelves of binders with GL reconciliation on them. Go. <laughs> yes, and and the physical evidence as an auditor, I'm telling you, when you, when you do a walkthrough of an office, and you see cubicles, and they actually have overhead bins to put those binders, that's a key indicator that they actually still do binders. Now, the question is, you know, I I know some companies can't get 100% behind it, but if you just see a small fraction of binders, then you're okay. But if the whole thing is, you know, quarter after quarter after quarter, then, look, it's it's clearly they, they have not adopted a modern finance journey. But I wanted to get into a different topic about lessons, right? Um, All of us have areas of improvement, and every day we look at a project and we can always do better. But tell us what lessons you've learned when you first went down this modern finance journey for yourself. Sure. So I think there's probably a few. Uh, Probably the one that I would focus on first is just know what you're trying to to answer? What are the questions that you're trying to answer and what's the, the end goals that you're trying to reach? And they can, they can take the form of a lot of different things. It can be we're trying to be a paperless environment. We're trying to be a more automated environment. We're trying to do daily accounting. Uh, we're trying to in, increase the, the robustness of our analytics, both from you know, an accounting and finance performance management perspective, as well as analytics that we're providing to the rest of the business. Um, We're trying to be more optimal and not have to hire more people to do those manual tasks and fill those paper binders that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. So I think it's having great clarity in what the end goal looks like and making sure that you're collaborating with the team, the folks that are going to be the most impactful on modernizing your accounting environment and making sure that you're listening to them, you're listening to their pain points, and, uh, and, and kind of prioritizing, okay, what's the lowest hanging fruit? Where can we get the most value by making adjustments? I mean, even as simple sometimes as let's stop using binders and create you know, electronic uh, uh, directories so that we don't have to have paper and we can have at least a, a, some sort of a workflow that's maybe Excel-based, but you can still manage it, maybe not necessarily making the leap all the way to um, a much more transformative environment of having online reconciliation tools or financial task management, but that you have those steps in place, you've designed it with a really clear focus of what you're trying to address and what kind of processes you're trying to update and address. When are you going to leverage technology to you know, to be able to optimize that, um, and again, continually collaborating with your team so that whatever it is you're designing, that the folks who are doing the work and are a part of the the touch points along the way, that they're really um, having a voice in it. Otherwise, it, it won't work as well. So I think that those are some, some really key lessons. I think that, uh, again, being willing to take a little bit of a risk, this is um, something that's frightening to a lot of finance executives, there, especially those of us who've been around for a while. It's really easy to get pretty entrenched and stuck in the way that we've done our you know, reconciliations or financial forecasting or budgeting or whatever the, the particular things are that you're trying to enhance and, and improve and just being willing to take a risk and, uh, and, and eliminate the fear of, well, it may not always work perfectly right out of the gate, but you'll have an opportunity to tweak it. 
Right, and I love the the fact that you mentioned about uh, the focus and clarity of what, what what's really the main objective of the goal, and the collaboration piece of it, right? To getting that buy-in, uh, so you can have a goal in mind, but you know, every, if everybody understands that vision and the the outcome of that vision, meaning the benefits, the reward at the end of the day, which could be you know again less, you know, super high spikes on on workload. Uh, you're going to get more people people to adopt not only the the concepts but but tactically they're going to start um, championing uh, best practices themselves because if you can go a little bit uh, into the the tr- financial transformation journey, um, you know what's next year look like you know and, and setting that roadmap roadmap out or that tone so those goals that you, you were alluding to in terms of hey let's try to get be more electronic or let's try to create some auto, automated workflow. And then checking in um, on a frequency that the team agrees to, you know, they can actually benchmark where they are for the next time or the next quarter or the next year, et cetera. So, um, but, you know, that clarity, uh, it's almost like almost any, you know, software product that you pick anyways. If, if you don't have that vision of what is the outcome you're really truly trying to achieve, it can kind of crumble uh, like a cookie and, and you know, it, you end up not achieving what, exactly what you wanted to get out of it. No, I totally agree. I think that design and then probably, you know, maybe adding one more lesson uh, or, or outcome is just being adaptable. It's not always going to go 100% like you want it to, so be willing to adapt and, and, and make the adjustments and the fine tweaks that you need to to get where you want to be. Yeah, yeah, be flexible, be bendable. Um, mm-hmm. So you have so many hats, uh, Brenda, but what should companies and boards, okay, so this is more at the – you know, key stakeholders at the board level consider when they take uh, what they need to make a strategic investment in the finance and accounting department. Like, what metrics should they really measure out of this journey? Yeah, it's a great question. I think this is an area that's always really hard to evaluate um, from a board perspective or even a senior executive perspective because people sort of look at account look at accounting as a necessary evil in a lot of organizations. It's something you have to pay for, you have to have people to do it. They don't necessarily understand exactly what's happening there. It's a little bit of a black hole. And so I think um, moving finance and accounting and the perspective of what finance and accounting can do to a different place helps boards and management better evaluate how to make those investments in the finance and accounting arena. And 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 actually, I think us being willing to put out some metrics and have discussion about those metrics. And as we all know, a little bit of it, it's just about the cost of people, right? Um, but then obviously starting to connect the cost to, of those people to some specific KPIs or I know a specific ROI and saying, okay, if we did this particular technology or system, you know, we'd be able to use the team that we have now this much more efficiently and they'd be able to add greater value, which they don't get to now. And we may not have to add, you know, more people because we're leveraging technology or system or whatever the case might be. It is one of, I think, the most difficult areas in an organization to put together, you know, an ROI analysis on and and, and put metrics together that you can take to um, a board or a, uh, a an executive team and really have a dialogue about, but there are specific ones. So you know, some of the things that, that I've looked at um, in my uh, journey and career in organizations is, you know, benchmarking, wherever you can get benchmarking data on what other companies are doing. And it can be as simple as, you know, 
AR, you know, DSOs and AAP DSOs and, you know, number of reconciliations that people are handling and, and days to close and, you know, number of assignments per, you know, GL accountant. And, and again, you always have to be a little bit conscientious of every business is slightly different, but there is becoming a ever-growing, you know, database of metrics like these available for CFOs to use so that they can be, you know, more informed on their decisions. They have information that they compare compare their team against. And again, I think you as you know, Sonia, I'm a big Blackline fan. You know, they actually have built-in metrics in some of the cases where you can actually compare, you know, each of the the users to uh, best practices. And then also internally, you can compare how people are doing on their assignments. Are they behind on their assignments? Are they, you know, are they always, always behind on their assignments? And what do we need to do about that? Is it a resource issue? Is it a process issue? And so I think that this is definitely probably an area where finance and accounting is changing the most in that you are now able to have analytics and metrics that that allow you to communicate and measure how your team is doing and then have those much more informed and intelligent conversations about how and when to make investments in you know systems and people and things that support finance and accounting so that you can show that connectivity to what you deliver to the rest of the organization and why it adds a greater level of value because of those investments. Right, and just to kind of chime in on the practical examples or cases, uh, a colleague that I used to work with a number of years ago leveraged Blackline, and they were acquired. And the, the moral of the story is not only was her and her, her accounting team, um, most of which were basically all from the big four, CPAs, some of them MBAs included, in that they were paid, they were acquired, but the acquiring company um, was going to absorb that accounting and, and finance department. Now, they found out salaries between the two parties, okay, and they were getting paid. Um, my colleague or friend was getting paid anywhere from 10 to 15% more from a team perspective. So she, if you took all the headcounts, they were getting paid a lot more. And the acquiring company said, gosh, you know, how is it that you guys were able to, quote, unquote, afford these uh, top-tier salaries and bonus structures, et cetera? I was like, well, wait a minute. Let's look at the number of transactions and the number of people we had to close the books. They were literally 50% of the people to do that work. They had lower turnover, okay, compared to the company that was acquiring them. And, and the, the point is this, is that with products and, and benchmarking, it was very obvious how inefficient the company that was about that had just acquired them was in just reconciling the books. Now, you know, whether or not they're going to in the future adopt uh, Blackline, but when a, an acquiring company is buying a company that has Blackline, they can easily tell how much time is it really taking them, what is the true cost per transaction. If you really wanted to get down to that level, you probably could, you know, especially on the account rec side. Uh, and that's where the future of accounting is in terms of M&A transactions. I do not think that they're just going to look at it like, oh, well, we just have to have accountants. Up, we you know we we know we got the quarter close et cetera. I think they're really going to get down to the nitty gritty. Is how many recs do you really need to be doing? Okay, how many people does it should it be taking? 
And that, to me, is going to be a, a big uh, 2017 issue because I do see more and more M&A transactions, and I think people want to figure out how to cut those costs if, and, and be more efficient with their time. And, and like you said earlier in our interview, adding more strategic value. How about forecasting or finding correlations between, if you're in the retail, between a promotion and, and the actual you know, sales transactions that are going through. Those are the things that executives really want to hear from accounting, not so much you know, the bank has been reconciled and now yeah. we're good. <laughs> you know, like. Exactly, exactly. No, totally. Yeah. When I think, I mean, just to kind of add an, a, a short story to that one is, you know, in my most recent um, time over at Hot Topic and Torrid, we'd implemented the Blackline tool um, within, uh, I don't know, a couple of months of my um, joining them to look at their processes. And we were able to add three companies over the last year and a half and grow uh, the two main companies about 25% year over year. And so obviously that's a lot more volumes. It's a lot more general ledger reconciliations. It's a lot more journals, a lot more analysis. And we added one person with the technology that we were able to leverage because now you could get so much more done uh, by using the tools. And to your point, you know, not having to look at every single reconciliation and using auto-certify tools and some of those things, you're able to just be a lot more efficient and I think still more opportunity to come. Um, by by now ramping up the analysis that that team can do versus just getting those tasks done. So that's I think a big way to point towards you know why this a system and why a uh, an investment in technology can really add um, a ton of robust um, front end and forward looking motion to an accounting team that hasn't existed before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and it's making those strategic investments. Unfortunately. Some people see, you know, accounting, you know, the only investment they want to make is Microsoft Office products or, you know, maybe an upgrade to the ERP package. Yeah. Um, but but I think slowly but surely things, you know, even at the board level, people are, are looking at um, a, a more sophisticated way of doing accounting. And I wanted to get into your story, Brenda, because everyone has a story of how they evolved in their careers from, you know, starting out as an accounting professional to now an executive and board advisor. Can you share with us uh, and our listeners, you know, your path? Sure, sure. So I'm fair, I'm somewhat traditional, I guess, um, with a few few nuances. I think that uh, I was a little bit unusual in that I started out in the accounting world. Uh, on the front line, so literally started as an accounts payable and accounts receivable clerk uh, over 30 years ago, and so had the opportunity to do a lot of the work that you know over the last you know 15, 20 years I've been able to oversee and 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 lead, and so that's a unique perspective that I've had is that I was able to you know be on the front lines doing the fixed asset reconciliation. So when a team member now says you know hey you just don't understand how hard this is. I can actually say, no, no, I really do understand how hard it is. I did it once before, and we can have a great, um, robust conversation about it. I did, you know, sort of then become a much more traditional. I went back to school and, and uh, you know, got my accounting degree and, and got my CPA and, and have worked in a lot of different um, types of organizations in a lot of different roles. So my path uh, has been a lot of zigs and zags. Intentionally, I really like being in dynamic environments, and I like to be in, in environments where there's a lot of change and a lot of uh, fun, energetic things happening. And so I've been really willing to take risks in my career. I've been in-house as a you know controller and a CFO. I've 
you know, taught at the at the university level. I've done consulting gigs and special projects um, um, quite a bit in my career, just because I like to be in an organization where there's something big happening. You're either moving towards, uh, you know, the next level of growth, an ERP implementation, a financing transaction, something along those lines. And I like that type of energy and excitement. So I've, you know, I've had some amazing companies that I've been able to work with, and I've had some that are not as amazing. <laughs> um, but I wouldn't change any of the things that I've done. I wouldn't change any of my career steps along the way. I think that you learn from everything that you do, and you take with you a list of accomplishments from each of those organizations, and, and you learn from those lessons. And so. Uh, I always tell people, they always ask me, so if you were going to give some people, you know, one piece of advice, it truly is that, you know, willingness to take uh, to take risks and to always be learning and to learn from each of your experiences and and figure out how you take that with with you wherever you're going next and be really be, be really open to to the next risk that you have coming your way. Yeah, it's, it's like going back to that bending and flexing and and then kind of taking a leap uh, forward or expanding a little bit more out of your traditional comfort zone. That that seems like an awesome uh, path. And, you know, I love the fact that you've, you've said, you know, some of, the, some of the experience weren't so hot and great, you know, and I think all of us can relate to that, right? I mean, no one ever I, – I have yet to hear someone say, oh, I, I landed a perfect job and then another perfect job and another, 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 another you know you have to learn from some of your failures and actually those are some of the best lessons that I've learned myself is those failures um because I don't want to repeat them again yes. um, they're, they're <laughs> Well, Brenda, we are wrapping up this interview, and I'm confident our listeners gained significant insight on what to consider and measure when they do start their own modern finance journey. Thank you, Brenda, for coming on our radio show. Thank you, Sonia. It was a pleasure to be here. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. This is Sonia Luna, CEO and founder of Aviva Spectrum, signing off. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.